Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are excited to welcome Del Fike. Del owns and operates Fike Cattle Company and Grace Master Genetics in eastern Nebraska. With more than 35 years of experience as both an agriculturalist and cattleman, he's consulted on farms and ranches throughout the nation and internationally. Today, Dell shares his journey of embracing change, problem solving, and transitioning the dynamics of his farming operation to a more holistic system. There's a whole lot of experience and perseverance shared in this story, so let's get right to it. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. I'm joyed to be joined by Del Fike. Uh, welcome, Del. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's awesome. I just want to take a minute to, to set up Del here a little bit with a special introduction. Um, Del is a person who, when they see a problem, isn't afraid to tackle it, no matter how long that might take. So, a lot of farmers out there, if you have a problem in your operation, you look at maybe building a tool that you can't get from an OEM or modifying things to fit for what your operation is. But not a lot of you are actually stopping and engineering something completely new, you know, a new tractor or a new combine and realizing that that might take, you know, 20 some years to get to the destination that you hope. And I think that's something really neat about Dell here is he's, he took a look at the, at the industry. And in this case, it happens to be those miracle machines that turn uh, grass into steak and saw that there was a real need to, to go a different direction. And, uh, over time he's, he's created a, a set of genetics, uh, which, you know, is not easy to do in a hybrid, let alone in animals. And he's going to dive in and tell us more about that. But if you're a row crop farmer today, I definitely want you to listen to the uh, tenacity and persistence and um, the vision that Dell had uh, as we're as we're talking here today. And you just substitute that for your crop, whether it's almonds, tomatoes, corn, soybeans, wheat, and and think about how you can look at farming differently and just really change the circumstances that you're in. So, uh, Dell, I don't want to take up all the time, but I just wanted to kind of introduce that so so everybody listening can can relate to what you've done. So. I want you to take it away. Tell us your story and, and how you how you got started in farming and, you know, weave in the, the Graze Master approach and, and what all you've done. Well, and I'll preface it by, by saying I can't tell anyone what to do that's right, but I can tell them everything not to do. And I think <laughs> that's probably more important. And uh, as you said, Monty, on, on, you know, it, it takes a lot of time to change. I think I've been chronically changing, you know, my entire life, even, even before I thought I was changing. And so my, my story comes as uh, it's quite different than a lot of people, but it, it's still based on, um, you have to change to survive. And when we can, when we think about and I was there, many, many people have been there, how arrogant we were, and we didn't think we had to change and all this. Well, um, you'll change or to change for you. 
you know, you'll have to catch up with it um, because uh, I've had a few good ideas. You've had a lot more good ideas. There's a lot of people that have had way more good ideas than you and I combined. And, you know, those ideas set the stage to how everything's, you know, going to start changing and environmentally and everything. And so take a step back, uh, go into the 80s. You know, I was old enough to be a part of the 80s with my father. Um, I, I never had a note co-signed by my father, but I co-signed my father's notes. I had a group of registered her for cows that were bought and paid for. I, I own more cows when I was 14 than I do now. Um, my dad's good friend was uh, the banker in a small town of Melford where I went to high school and I stopped by one day. I knew dad was stressing some. He didn't have a lot of debt, but anything that, that was out that wasn't under control was a big worry for my father. Um, I just stopped in there and said, Alan, what, what can I do to help dad? And he goes, well, you got those cows you can put up against it. And he said, do you, or I said, do you recommend that? He goes, hell no. But he said, I know you're going to do it anyway. And so I did that. You know, I got the chance to pay um, some 20% interest back in the day. Um, I got to see the community basically, pardon my French, but go to hell overnight, you know, and um, people committing suicide and just things that didn't need to happen. There was so much, um, <laughs> like, a, like a hyper profitability or a false profitability built into all that. Times weren't as good as everyone thought they were. And, you know, it, it, it looks a little bit like today, you know, my gosh, things are kind of going crazy. Did we learn anything, um, you know, from the past or not? But sorry, that was a long, long part of how I got started into it. Um, always on the cow side, we had registered Herefords. My family did for several decades um, in the 80s. Um, I was tired of slow Hereford calves and and uh, needed a little bit more excitement in my life. We started working on some composite cattle and things like that um, and build our, our graze master cow herd from that. So it basically took us 30 years of a lot of um, going through a lot of things that didn't work, a lot of breed combinations that didn't work until we got to the ones that, you know, we feel, um, you know, it is working as well for us as, as we can find. And of course that changes as we find other breeds that maybe can go into that. Um, then fast forward to the chance my cousin and I had to farm several thousand acres of ground. So several thousand acres in my area of the average farm size was probably 700 acres and we were several thousand, um, started uh, no-till almost when I got out of high school in the late 80s and thought that was the end-all cure-all, thought we were doing all this great stuff. Yes, we were saving time, we were saving fuel, we were starting to save the soil, but it wasn't enough. And then um, started in, I think way back in 1999, doing some cover crops just for cow feed. You know, the cow guy always just looks at it as cow feed. So the cover crop the cover crop idea to a cow guy is an easy sell because 
you know, just like uh, if it's a mistake, he's still going to graze cows or put it up for hay. No matter what it looks like, you'll put a fence around it and do it that way. And luckily in the beef business, I, I always said we can eat our mistakes. So everything that doesn't work, you know, is something genetically uh, good enough. We can, we can put in the freezer, which that was kind of the start of our little meat business. But um, I'm kind of all over the place, but we, we quickly found out that that didn't work when we, when we peaked with all those acres is when the LDP deal came out on corn and we were sitting on several hundred thousand bushels of grain. And I think the corn price was a buck 44. So you'll learn in a hurry that that doesn't, that doesn't work. Was, was anybody giving us pressure that we had to get out? No, in fact, they were telling us we needed to get bigger. Yeah, you make it up on volume, Dell, don't you know? How yeah, it, well, you know, it's like the government, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll stay out of the government side. Yeah. <laughs> but but it really got me thinking. It got me thinking that none of that was making sense. And my, my dad was a great innovator and kind of fell into that industrialized deal. Um, he was actually recruited by Roswell Garst in the 50s to sell hybrid corn through this area where they hadn't sold much. And then was 25 years with Pioneer and 25 years with the Garst family. Um, he, he liked that, that innovation with that, the seed and everything. My grandfather, Adolf Eich, was a, what I call a barefoot naturalist. He, he listened to the soil. He, he watched the plants. I followed him around all the time and really forgot that for a big part of my life then. And then I, I had a series of back problems, multiple, multiple surgeries that took me out of that ability to farm large scale. It also gave me the chance to go to college for the first time in my life when I was 30 and, uh, and did some, started out in radiology and then ended up in uh, coding and billing hospital administration and managed a medical clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska. So when you hear all these people coming in and, and our, our front staff gals were all from the farm and they were always coming back to me, but talking about how these city people really hate the farmer. And I said, well, they probably have pretty good reason. And they're like, oh, we're doing everything's right. You know, everything right. And I said, well, we're doing some things right but we're really protectionist in the way we're doing things. And why are we doing that? If, if we're doing things so right, why do we have to protect or hide from people? My dad was still alive at that time. And, and I came, their, their house is on the same place as mine. And I, so I talked to dad every night. And, and I told him, I said, boy, people don't have a good, good idea about agriculture. He goes, because they're spot on. He said, they, they're, seeing, they're seeing our struggles or the struggles that we can't see. And why are we doing all this to the soil? Why are we doing all this, you know, why are we raising cattle in places that maybe aren't the best? And so that really blew the doors wide open. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm smart this way. I left a really good paying, uh, healthcare position to go back and start working for a nonprofit. I think I made about a, a fifth as much as I did at the clinic. So, I mean, that made perfect sense to my dad. He's like, well, why wouldn't you do something like that? And 
he always said I couldn't stand prosperity. I always had to be doing something to to teeter on the edge of that. And uh, worked for a nonprofit that served farm and ranchers with disabilities in Nebraska for seven years. But during that time, started to build this whole program. Really started to learn about soil health. Um, I was always a cow guy, but boy, you know, you could see where those cows had been that it was better. And so I, t I, I'm not a soil scientist. I'm a, a soil romantic, and, um, and I, and I'm chock full, like I said, of things that I know won't work. And I think that's a big part of the Grace Master Group that you know we we took the name uh, from the breed of cattle and their adaptability and kind of swung it into our, our group that goes out and consults and, and does education and, and has things like that because we knew we could do adaptable things any place across the country. And so today, I mean, we're, we're we work with the Goro Carbon Alliance on, on some stuff there again, it's, is, uh, it's something that can add some value if these guys are going to do it already. Does it fit everyone? No, but it certainly fits a lot of our customers or a lot of our clients and um, know the educational component. And then really why we wanted to put the Graze Master Group portfolio together was, and you'll know this too, Monty, back in the day when you were starting to switch, there wasn't a lot of places to go to get information or, or ideas on inputs. You know, everyone said, do it this way or do it that way, but who did you call? Everybody I called didn't know what I was talking about which is kind of still like today. Never mind that. That was a bad example. But we just wanted to have a group of people together that if they needed somebody to figure out farmer ranch succession planning, they call Kirk in our group or they, we, we don't really sell the Graze Master group doesn't sell anything. We just have like a main street community deal of, hey, talk to this guy, you know, and um, I'm really hell bent on, on bringing those communities back to life. Because at my age, I got to see the vibrancy of those communities when I was young. And then through the eighties and early nineties, got to see them all boarded up. And so I, I, I truly think I have a calling in this. I may come off harsh sometimes to people. My dad said shortly before he passed away, he said, you've really made it. And I'm like, oh, that's good. I said, I'm glad somebody said I, I really made it. He goes, well, you can tell people to go to hell and they look forward to the ride. And I'm like, all right. So, so my, my philosophy of, of maybe kicking them in the butt, but giving them a hug when we get done, it's a tough love deal, but we need that. You know, um, I, I equate what farmers and ranchers are dealing with is, you know, they suffer from the Stockholm syndrome. I did, you did. We all were, were friends with our captors that were trying to just sell us something. Are those bad people? No, but I'd like to put every one of them out of business so they could go back to a farm or ranch and do exactly what they want to do. So, sorry, that was a really long answer to a very short question. Nope, that's exactly what we wanted. And that's what our, our listeners enjoy hearing is just what what got you to where you are and, and the why behind uh, what you do. And there's a lot to un unpack here. So I, I've been taking some notes as, as we go along. And I thought one of the things that you said in there, you know, here at the end, you talked about the Stockholm syndrome, but 
uh, protectionist farmers. And um, I thought that's a good quote. And if you really look at it, <clears throat> you know, there's um, everything that we're doing uh, as, as farmers is we're being taught we're the right thing. We're sustainable. We're, you know, looking out what's best. We're 96% family owned, you know, so the Farm Bureau is really, you know, promoting us to try to keep us doing what we've always done. And, and, and all the industry is very interested in us continuing to do what we've always done because that provides stability. Uh, so tons go through a fertilizer plant, gallons go through a chemical plant, units go through a seed plant. Because uh, all of these assets have to get paid for over time, and shareholders expect returns. But um, talk a little bit more about what your dad said to you about they are spot on. You know, when uh, uh, I think a lot of times as farmers, uh, we just instantly say, "Oh, no, that 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 city person doesn't know what they're talking about." Now, there's probably some that they don't know what they're talking about. And there's probably some things we're doing as farmers that's really good, but there's probably an 80% range in there that uh, maybe we're not quite 100% right on. Dive into that a little bit more in the Stockholm Syndrome in your perspective and, and what you see going on there. So I'll go back to what you said. Um, you know, all these things provide stability but they don't provide stability for you and I or our friends on the farms or ranches. They provide stability for people making money off of us. And I'm going to ruffle feathers here because, you know, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of people making money off of you and I and our friends that it doesn't set well with me. And so um, if I can give them any type of alternative opportunity to really start living for themselves and doing the things that are really right for for their farmer ranch that's what i that's what i want and you know we get so ingrained and it's always been done this way we have to buy more land for the next generation we're creating a legacy well uh, maybe not a, a quote that I'm super proud of saying, but uh, I still get a kick out of some of the stuff I say. And there was a guy talking to me one time. He's like, I'm buying this after we looked at his land. And I said, boy, you, your soils are really, you know, really degraded. He goes, well, it's not just mine because I'm doing good things. I'll make it better. And I'm like, actually what we've been doing has made it worse, but you know, we didn't know there was other ways to do it or, all this he goes well i just continue to buy land for my for my kids and i'm like i don't think your kids are probably going to farm i was looking at them i'm like they look like they're pretty they're too smart to farm probably they're going to go do something really really cool and and i said we get confused with legacy and um we get confused with that we've done a good job with the soil that, that we have it and he's like well give me an example i said well if you treated your kids the way you treated your soil, they'd probably come and take your kids away from you. And that was the light bulb to be like, I'm really not doing a good job. Now, was it his fault? No, because I said that I thought I was doing everything right. Synthetic fertilizers are just kept, you know, keep pouring it on. 
And, you know, we, we need that back to the part of the question, you know, the, we're all in this together, the city people, the country people, every, we're all in this together. Just like here in Nebraska, it's going to be a huge deal over water and not too, not too long. And when I was a kid, I got to travel with my dad who went all over the country to learn things about agriculture. And I got to go to some places in Texas, New Mexico that, you know, they were saying already in 73 or 74 that, you know, you guys are going to run out of water. And they're like, no, we're not. It's our water. We're going to pump it, blah, blah, blah. Well, those, that's the same area you drive through now that the pivots are growing up in weeds. So it, it's coming to a town near you, if you believe it or not. And, um, but back to, we're all in it together. God gave us all of this to do a good job stewarding it, but also to do a good job of sharing it. And so it's, it's hard for me to place ownership on anything so I, I kind of resonate more with what the people like the lady in New York City that has one tomato plant. I've always said knows more about soil than most farmers. She touches it. She understands it. And we've just had a huge lack of understanding that maybe the, the urban sector has said, hey, guys, is there a better way? And, you know, the American farmers, the most independently, um, well, supported you know person you know th through the government uh you know these people these people it's left a bad taste in their mouth you know it's their money that's keeping a lot of these operations going and we shouldn't have to have money to to keep if we're doing a good thing with the soil and raising good plants and healthy animals and healthy kids and communities we, we don't need all that but we're stuck in that so there again, long answer. Well, I got to meet Tom Robinson lately. He's in a farmer from Australia and, and uh, he likes to poke a little fun at us U.S. farmers. And he was saying that uh, in Australia, we have a great way to sort out the bad farmers. He says, we don't have any government programs. So he says, there's only yep. good farmers left. And yep. and there is something to that, uh, you know, and, and all of those things align. But uh, back to the thing, as far as I think when we hear as a farmer, uh, we hear people maybe criticizing or giving us a little hard time of, that are not in farming, but they're eating food, right? Mm -hmm. They're our customer. Uh, we need to listen to them, not dismiss them and, and realize that, yes, they may need some education, but honestly, we may need some education. We, we may have some things. So I think it boils down to um, people don't like to be wrong, you know, and uh, nobody likes to be wrong. Right. And nobody likes to be told they're doing the wrong thing. That's just human nature. We, we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to be wrong. So I think that's um, uh, a key to that. So I think it's okay to be quote, uh, chronically changing, as you said earlier, uh, and question what you do. So how are you comfortable with quote unquote chronic changing? How, how did our, you get to that point and how would you encourage others to be not be afraid of doing the same thing all the time well i, I think i'm just really good at at, at uh, making mistakes and so i have to go with the only thing i'm really good at and our model around here is we're not making mistakes fast enough and Why? when you tell 
why is that okay to make mistakes? I mean, most people have been told that you don't want to make mistakes. You want to get an A, you know, on the, on right. the grade. You don't want any wrong answers. So, I mean, that's conditioned into us. But talk about what is that value of a mistake? Well, for one thing, your life would be pretty boring if you weren't trying new things and, and constantly making mistakes. Honestly, I, mine I, could be a little less exciting to be truth, truthful with you, Del. But. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot of days like that, too. It's like, wow, I don't know that old way looked a little easier today. You know, when you're rolling up poly wire in an ice storm or you're doing all that kind of crazy stuff. But it is OK to to not, you know, and, and maybe making mistakes is too, too harsh or too honest. Um, but, you know, this country was, was built on innovators, you know, the, the industrialists and all, everything. We have to think about what we've done here. We did it so much faster than many other civilizations. Unfortunately, we've degraded our soil or depleted our soil and water faster than any other civilization. So we hold that record too. But if we don't make mistakes, if we're not constantly trying something new, um, you're, you're, you're never, you're never going to feel that you're living to the fullest. So I don't ever want to go out and look at the same thing or do the same thing twice. I just, I, I can't do it that way. And I, I did. And it's, it's okay. But we have to really have a rebirth of the innovators and cooperators and neighbors that made this country great. Everything is cyclical. Everything has been done before. The cool thing about, if we talk about regenerative agriculture, or we like to call it responsible agriculture, um, most of it's been done before. Now we've got some new cool technology thrown in there. Cover crops have been around for hundreds of years. Grazing has been around for millions of years, whatever, you know. Um, so it's important. And as I look at my hundreds of books in my bookcase that are probably going to fall and kill me during this podcast, is we have to continue to study history, but not just ag history. We have to study the whole civilization and the process. Um, maybe throwing a, a little poetry or something like that in too to, to spice it up. But um, we've made a lot of mistakes already that we don't need to make. So the mistakes that we're making now need to be new and fun. Okay. New and fun mistakes. That's the motto today. You know, that's our theme because it is, you know, I, I think about, I would have walked away from this, ag deal should have probably several times but when we started doing the cover crops and really the soil health deal and and all that it's it's like a drug just like soil is a drug when you're smelling it and the, the beauty of it and everything it does um this agriculture doesn't have to be boring you know i don't have a tractor that i can let go of the steering wheel successfully we only have one tractor and it's a 79 John Deere 4240 um, with a loader that we use from time to time. And 
my creativity has to be walking across that soil or seeing a group of livestock grazing, seeing my granddaughters going through those, those prairies that we, we brought back and um, seeing that hope. I'm not doing any of this for me. My generation, your generation, money, we're done. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see, have enough water. We'll have enough healthy soil to raise food and stuff. But my granddaughters and those generations, that's why I'm doing all this. And I'm I'm pretty hardcore and it, it has to be for those generations. Not the generations before us. You know, people get hung up on, you know, I'm 10th generation, I'm whatever generation. Man, we screwed up a lot in all those generations. Yes, we did. And now is our chance to do something right um, by learning from those mistakes. So we like to call it making farming fun again. And we've had that comment several from several of our customers when we're working with them there. You know, I, I remember a good friend of mine, they were uh, two brothers looking at retiring and they just kind of become disinterested with the, didn't have family or coming into the farm and, and just, we're just kind of doing the same thing, different day. And uh, we started working with cover crops and, and, you know, advanced nutrition practices and they were having fun and they decided to keep going for another, I don't know, eight or so years. And, and then retired just because it was, it was time, you know, and, yeah, um, yeah. but it, it, it's true. There's, there's things that uh, we do that makes it fun versus just a recipe to execute. You know, I'm doing what the co-op told me to do. And I'm just a tractor driver that is responsible for some really big notes at the bank. And yeah. uh, so I think there's uh, there's a different mindset there. The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. All right, let's uh, let's get into some more nuts and bolts. We don't want to we don't want people to uh, you know over overwork our brains here too much just yet. <laughs> but uh, okay, so thirty years um, to get to the Graze Master genetics. Uh, so um, thirty years later, you're an overnight success with this, right? So well, in my own mind, yeah, yeah, in my own <laughs> mind. So uh, talk to us about yeah, okay, your decision to to go down this path. Obviously, lots of mistakes involved. You had to talk and work with lots of people and, you know, so observation, sort these things out. I'm sure you created some lines that went off the wrong direction, you know, and 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 you had to start over or, you know, uh, call them out. Just uh, talk about that process of experiment and and fail, experiment and succeed, and and what where Graze Master uh, genetics are at today. So where we're at today is we, we started a, a little meat company that um, based off of this breed of cattle, and I'll go from where we're at and then back. Um, we, nearly all of our animals go into our meat company now. So I, I, I kind of worked myself out of the genetic side as far as selling those, but not as far as um, advising or, or recommending um, different breeds i'm a so i 
I am a full-blown heterosis, crossbreed, everything like that. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Like I said, my dad sold seed for Pioneer back in the day, but in the early 70s, they had a, a cattle herd, and they started one of the first composites. I got to be by my dad's side and and learn you know, pretty early that those crossbred cows stayed in the herd longer. They took less feed. You know, they weaned a heavier calf, they, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the calves were more vigorous and all that. And this this was coming out of a, a, a family operation that was registered Herefords. And so I, and I'm not just bashing the Herefords because I still have Hereford in, in our composite. But it's always like when you see something you can make better that you have the power to do, you just need to do it. And so our cow herd, we went from corn silo. My dad, oh my gosh, he fed cows and, you know, we, a lot of corn silage and calved them. It was cold and, and that's what you were supposed to do. And, and then we hauled manure all summer onto wheat stubble and, and it was job security. Now, hold on. You that's know, what you, you're still supposed to do. Haven't you got the memo? They haven't changed that. That's, that's still the, yeah. what you have to I, do. I, yeah, I, and you're, you're right to, um, so, you, so you have the ability to use copious amounts of protein and feed and manpower and, and bragging rights. Who doesn't want to brag about going out at two 30 in the morning and saving that hundred pound calf and putting it in the truck and then bringing it in mama's kitchen. And I mean, the, the romance of the, of the cowboy just has no end and it probably should in those situations and we've done all that i i don't i'm not bashing people with what they're doing i'm just saying hey there's a better way and it took me a while to figure that out too so seeing you know that composite deal and everything while we we're still running registered herford said you know they're a little bit slower when they were born and cows you know didn't last quite as long and brings me to where we're at today with a, a really high percentage of Angus cattle, you know, why hasn't crossbreeding, even though it's becoming more and more, you know, um, popular, why, why couldn't the beef deal really get that going? Well, a lot of it is the old breed society mentality of, you know, England and those places, but um, the cattle side, just like the crop side, is a continue a continual dangling of the carrot. If you do this, if you pay us a little bit more money to run the the EPDs on this calf, or if you do this, you're going to have a better cow herd. There, when we do enterprise analysis on on some of these cow herds across the country they are hemorrhaging money so badly you know they're they're spending big money on on bulls that are basically the same thing they got in their own cow herd and and uh, you know they're they're not really looking at the possibility of you know using a different breed on it things like that so the whole the grace master deals is not a uh, it works perfect for us okay and it can work well in other people's programs with some tweaking, whatever cow herd they have that's acclimated, 
you know, they want to use some crossbred bulls or if it's a graze master, if it's some other hybrid bull or whatever is what we want to figure out for them. But um, in the beef deal, we leave so much on the table so we can have a crazy, ridiculous story to tell. You know, it's like I, I, I had to feed these cows for nine months, you know, and that was on a good year, you know, and these cows are too big or they're too, all this stuff that, that those old cowboys a hundred years ago would have never tolerated cows that we have today. You know, they didn't pamper cows, cows were cows. And that's where we got back to. I mean, we, our cows run out, they get some hay, but you know, 60% of the hay we figure goes to feeding the soil, 40% to the cow. Um, and we build a lot of soil doing that. Um, but my dad, before he passed away, he got to see me change the cow herd to his dream cow herd. Calving in the summer, you know, calving in May and, and wrapping up that first part of June, not touching a calf, no wormers, no poron, basically very little vaccination of anything. And he's like, it could be done. You know, and he was always like, he wanted to do it, but he just could never quite get, you know, the, the courage or I don't know he probably didn't want to offend his friends that he was buying a lot of feed from who, who knows you know I don't have a lot of input people stop by anymore so I don't consider them my friends but I'd sure like them to be my friends if they wanted to be but um, it it's crazy the mentality we get caught up in and uh, if you can't break out of all those different boxes in the livestock industry it's going to be hard for you to break out of any type of boxes because you really are controlling more of your own destiny with livestock than with anything else. And God did not mess up, you know, something that grazes. He built the perfect, like you said, the perfect fertilizing machine, the perfect grazing machine, the perfect meat food machine. And, you know, I blame that back on the eighties too. You know, that's the first thing those bankers told those guys to sell or, you know, the, the, the hogs and cattle were liquid, get them off the place, pay down those notes. Well, the factory went away. And when people tell me how great an investment combines and tractors are, I said, the only problem I have with them, I know they're, they're needed, but they never have baby combines and tractors. And so that's hard for me to get my head around now, you know, when a cow can go out and have a calf on her own, bring it into the fall and things like that. So, um, we, we've taken a lot of God's beauty and really messed it up. And my intent is just try to bring some of it back. You know, when I say my prayers and I, it's like, you know, God, I'm like, I'm just trying to get it back to some of that beauty, you know? And he's probably thinking, well, you guys messed it up, you know, but you know, that, that's the whole part of why we're doing it. We, we, I would love to get it back to the state of the garden. Who knows what that looked like, but I know it looked a hell of a lot different than it does now. Well, the good part is, is when, you know, I personally decided to bring livestock back to the land. Uh, we didn't have any, I didn't have any experience with it. So the cool part is I could just start, you know, with May, June calving and, and you know, no porons, no dewormers, yep. no vaccinations. I mean, all this stuff, I just, Hey, uh, I just started there. So transitioning to that, it is tough. Okay. So yep. talk about your roadmap a little bit. I mean, moving from February calving up to uh, May calving, 
that's not too hard to do. And maybe you do that over a few years, but, uh, you know, how did you, um, uh, you know, how, how did you start doing less of the, uh, input based, you know, so the pharmaceuticals were you cold Turkey. Did you phase it over time? Uh, how, how did you make that approach? Well, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to cover crops. So, which it sounds crazy, but the, when we started getting the soil health going in the right direction, starting to raise a lot of cover crops and with the ability to graze on those covers, um, even though the last two years have not been good, we've been too dry to raise much of anything, but that happens. That's life. You know, we'll be rolling again someday, but um, it's crazy how I think our, our, our original aha moment was probably 12 or 14 years ago when we started to fence line wean. I read this article and my dad was talking about it, something about the year before some calf crawled over whatever and he said I couldn't get that damn calf on the other side and there was just a hot wire separating that from the cow and I'm like hmm. okay so we started to put some cover crops in these paddocks that were close to the place where we have some grass too and normally we'd wean in the dust or the mud two weeks later you were giving everything shots just like clockwork they had pneumonia dust pneumonia or pneumonia because it was cold and wet and when we started to do that that first year we treated no calves they were grazing beside those cows in go ahead so you were fence line weaning in yep. putting calves into the diverse cover crop mixes yep. first, and yep. leaving cows on the grass. So you yep. the, the additional nutrient uh, uh, variety and availability and high energy status of those cover crops compared to stockpile grasses uh, yep. allowed them to stay healthy. Oh, absolutely. So and they're grazing all the time. So when they're grazing, all that stuff that's normally clogging up their sinuses is draining out. You know, they're comfortable because the cow is right there. Mama wasn't two miles away where they could still hear her bellering. Um, normally, in one day, we have all the cows, they're done bellering. Mm -hmm. But they're still close to those cows, but they're grazing off. But when we saw those cows on some of those diverse cover crop deals, you know, we'd, we'd still have hay feeders set up and all that. They didn't touch it. You know, we were still trying to give them a little, some pellets or something. They didn't touch it. And my dad's like, I think we're on to something. And I remember he kind of threw the five gallon bucket joyfully into the corner of the machine shed. And I knew then it's like, dad's okay with this. Dad's like, why in the hell did I do this for 60 years of my life? I think people are okay with not buying, uh, you know, mixes or, or hay, you know, that, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. works out all right. You know, my experience on, so I've the weaning thing, I've tried the haul them a mile to five miles away. I've, I've done the, the nose paddles while that looks, looks fun, uh, and ridiculous. Uh, still they fall off and then you've got some that are weaned and some aren't, um, you know, we've done all that and we went to fence line weaning last year and the calves, oh, cause we're weaning at 10 months. Okay, so I mean, the, there's not a lot of milk going on. Big animals graze, grazing, big calves grazing a lot anyway. They could care less. Uh, they really could care less. They were all together with their buddies. Um, the worst thing was the first few days is mom's hurting. You know, she's at the fence 
calling to them saying, Hey, uh, get over here. It's a little painful, you know, but the Cavs really, they could care less. They see each other, look at each other, but I mean, they, they would walk over the hill and the mothers are just, you know, they were just trying to, um, they weren't, I wouldn't say they're nervous about them. It's just, you know, after you're not milk for a day or two, you you start to hurt, I suppose, but it honestly, super simple. And, uh, we definitely continue doing it that way. Um, well, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a good way of doing it. it. Unfortunately this year, we, we didn't have any cover crops growing and we, we kind of modified a little bit. We ended up seeing um, without that really natural environment that it can revert back pretty fast. You know, we had a few calves that we ended up having to treat, which was something, I mean, we didn't even hadn't done that in years. You forget what you're doing there. That's a good and, reminder. Uh, yeah. The other thing you is. could have done too is maybe, you know, left some stockpile for weaning and drop a drop a temporary two or three wire through there. So yeah, kind of a physical along with, you know, hot wire yeah. and just let them go out on pasture for the for the process and then then bring them back. And yep. I mean it's uh you know, we we specifically save a pasture with stockpile for that process. If we run out ahead, we'll hay feed ahead, then we then we bring it. But you know, it just requires a little you know, and, and that was a great reminder, and I'm glad you shared that. So people who are, you know, doing defense line weaning, keep that in mind. So yeah, and and normally, you know, our only trouble is we had went through the stockpile of grass that we were going to wean, just trying to keep as many cows around the place. And so you go from all these beautiful deals that work great on on really good years to hey, we're survival mode. We got to do gotta this order to your rain better, Dell. Right, I, mean, I know. For crying out loud, you, you you need to order it more off, more regular instead of. I know. Yeah, I, I, and there again, mistakes, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, just just going back to that, it's everything was a change for the better. But the, the fence line wing started that whole process, and then um, I remember the first group of cows we didn't pour when we paired. That's when we were still pairing out, calving in the pens and pairing out on the grass. And I got home, and my son had paired out. Oh, six or 12 camera. I think it was a dozen pairs. And I said, did you pour those? We were always pouring them as it got on the trailer. He goes, oh, crap. I'm like, okay, the next ones we're not going to pour, or we're going to pour the next ones because you already have, we've got our control group here. And ironically, the same day that the ones that were poured got their hair coming back, the cows we didn't pour, their hair came back. So it was nature. Ta-da. <laughs> and I said, we're done pouring and worming and all this. And I remember my vet saying, you're going to have cows fall out. They're not going to get bred. I can remember one cow that her hair was a little scruffy. She didn't fall out either. But our our cows haven't had anything like that in, you know, 12 or 15 years. And they look amazing. But the reality is if they did fall out, think about this, everyone. If you if you had one or two that fall out because you didn't do a pour on, they had lice stress or or worm stress. Guess what you just selected for? You mm-hmm. selected for the two that are not adapted to your program. Yeah, which it's really okay. vice versa. You know what I you mean? You know, the, the the whole agriculture deal is set up for the weaknesses to keep everything going, and the, that was the biggest favor that could happen when cows fall out of the program. You know, that it's just, it, it makes you money. It looks like, oh gosh, my two best cows are gone. 
they weren't your best pals. No, they weren't. They were in your mind, but not in nature's mind. And nature's yep. the ultimate judge. So just think about this as farmers. If you had a hybrid that was just your favorite and it had Goss's wilt, or if it had tar spot, or if it had gray leaf spot, or, you know, pick the disease du jour, okay? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, even though it was your best, you'd be, oh, I don't want to plant that because it's more susceptible to yep. XYZ. We do that all the time, right? So it's, yep. it's the same, same kind of thing. Okay, so Dale, you're telling me that you came to the realization that families and restaurants don't buy cattle they buy beef right so you, you realize that maybe we need to do something a little more than just uh four legs we, we got to take it to something that people can eat tell us about your journey there on selling um, so mom and dad had always sold you know some quarters have stuff like that and um you know we we had the chance uh because we're located so close to Lincoln, Nebraska, we're 14 miles from Lincoln and we're 70 miles from Omaha. Our location is perfect for a local meat deal. What really got us going is, you know, we were talking about we're, we're starting this meat deal and this is how we're doing it differently with the soil and stuff. And then because of our location, people would want to come out from town and, and go on tours. And so, you know, we never passed up anyone that wanted to bring their family out and go on tours and, and look at this. And back then, we weren't a hundred percent grass or forage based. Yeah, we were we were on grass or covers and still feeding them a little grain. And these grass fed consumers would come out, and we'd say, "Well, this is a deal. They're still getting some grain. We we're giving them some sorghum back in in, in those days." So I said, "They're not a hundred percent grass fed or whatever," and they're like, "Oh, this is beautiful." We just, they're in such a nice place where they're being raised. They're not in a feedlot. They're not, they didn't care about the grain part at that point. Now, did we moved away from that just because, you know, in our, in our natural quest to, to do all that we did, but um, it was really an eye opener on people care a lot about how things are treated. And, and we would equate that back to even the soil you know, every, everyone has to smell a handful of soil when they come out. We have to talk about it. The kids have to dig around. We have to do all that. But when they started to see the better the soil, the better the plant, the better the animal, it's a no-brainer. And so then that just really took off. You know, one person, we never did any advertising to speak of. One person told the next person and, and uh, you know, here we are. And it, it's something I probably wouldn't have pursued, but my my son and daughter-in-law, my, my daughter-in-law is from Temecula, California. And she's another one like you, Monty. When she got here, she thought the way we were doing it was the only way to be doing it. She goes, why are people doing it that other way, you know, in farming? Or she goes, I don't even understand. It doesn't make sense. So she didn't have to go through all those hoops of retraining or unlearning. But they pushed it, you know, the meat deal is her deal. And, and she's, she's taking it to a new level of, you know, the soccer moms and, you know, she's dragging meat all over and stuff like that. But it's really still based on our story of how we changed our farm. And we didn't just change it for us. We changed it for, for those people too. No, that's great. And plus it provided an opportunity, right? So yep. your, your daughter-in-law would not have had that opportunity in a conventional 
farming operation, right? And you create, uh, I think farmers with their protectionist views of feedlots and those kind of things, you are creating a dead end opportunity because uh, yeah. there's just sometimes you can't get big enough to bring yeah. in the next person. The capital doesn't work because of low margins. So you have to rethink yeah. and reinvent yourself. And I just, I just had this conversation, Ward Labs in Kearney, they're one of our Grace Master partners now. And so we're talking to those guys constantly. They, they all buy meat from us. They all love that meat. And, um, but, but when you start thinking about um, the, there's so many things that you don't need to be doing to raise a really good product. And, you know, they can see that in their testing. They can see that through, you know, how we're doing it on the cover crop deal, but it's just, it, it, it blows your mind when you, and you know, this let nature take its course and we stand back and watch it. It's a beautiful thing to have happen, you know, and, and you've got to see that with your own, your own program, but it, it equates to, better products and, and, and better things for, for people. Um, before we, uh, before we have to go here today, I wanted to visit a little bit about um, your work with the global carbon Alliance. And also uh, you had a, a brief stint with Indigo ag uh, talking a little <laughs> bit about the carbon markets and what that's all about. Um, backfill what's going on there. And then I want to bring up a larger issue in regards to ESG and, and an idea I want to float by you to, to test for validation. So talk to us a little bit about uh, opportunities for farmers and carbon and what you're doing with the Global Carbon Alliance. Well, and, you know, I've had, uh, I guess, a lot of exposure to carbon markets. Yes, I worked with, with Indigo a few years ago as a regenerative ag consultant and, and, and got to do a lot of things there. Um, the Agoro Carbon Alliance was something we really sought out and we really, really studied because we've, we've probably been through 30, almost 40 companies of due diligence or hands in there some way on the carbon side. Um, we love the people, but it was the only carbon program that identified pasture and rangeland acres. And I, I tend to be hard on the, the row, my row crop buddies and they're making all the money and getting all these perks but there, there's a little something to that. The, the livestock guy never gets any perks to speak of. And the things that they were asking to have changed were the things that everybody wanted to change anyway. So if I could have something to offer these, these farmers and ranchers on this pasture range and deal, that's what I, that's what I wanted. Now, Agoral still does it on the row crop side too. We put acres like that into it, but, it was really like your, your hardest deal to do in all this change is it doesn't take as much capital, takes different capital at a different time that isn't generated in the same way that conventional agriculture can generate capital. That was kind of a crazy thing to say. But with that being said, a program like Agoro has, you can tailor make it, you can get all the money at the end, you can get some of the money up front, some of it at the end, or you can take part of it, you know, to go do something right away. Um, and that's where we were really stuck in our own operation. We needed a, a different watering system to really maximize our, our grazing. And we needed some stuff like that, that just financially, just, you know, when you crunch the numbers, it wasn't working. But when somebody comes in and says, hey, we want to pay you for the cool stuff you're 
doing or starting to change and give give you this money and so I can take that and start something else. You, you just have to do it. You know, it's just a no brainer because um, if you're doing the right thing anyway and it fits into that program, um, that's the way to go. And carbon is just a, a segue or a stepping stone into a lot of other cool things that are coming. People bash the carbon deal because it's been crazy. You know, it's, I can tell you a lot of crazy about that deal, but we're getting to a lot of uh, legitimate programs out there that want to do the right thing that are really looking at it from a global perspective, but also building community. And that's what Agoro talks a lot about. Let's, let's rebuild main street in this deal. We're all in this together. And I think that approach is unique compared to equip, which is taking the worst and making it okay. You know, we're, yeah. we're taking resource concerns. You know, my biggest thing I loved, I looked at some equipment money. Well, you couldn't do it because it didn't have a resource concern. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's not a problem. So we, we're not going to help you to take, get it to the best, you know, now if you had a problem, so I'm like, okay, so if I create a problem, then I can, then I can get funding to make it better. <laughs> you know, yeah. that sounds kind, like of a, kind of a crazy uh, convoluted, well, only the government can come up with that. But, right. you know, nice part about this is let's say you have good things going on. But you and you want to do better, but like you're saying, the uh, water is definitely on daily moves uh, 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 a limitation. So, you know that can come in and help fund that to move from, you know, really good to best practices. Is that is that a good way to say it? And the private market yeah. going to be there in, in multiple things in the future to help us do that. Is that a fair right. fair way to say that? It is, and, and the cool thing about like Agoro, they're not selling anything; they're buying carbon, so they want you to be really successful. And that's why they brought a guy like me in and 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 our team to figure out how we can sequester the most. Because the good part about it is, if if we're making your soil better, it's a win-win already. If you're getting a little money on top of that from doing more, that that's that's really where we want to be with these people, and and it's a game changer. There's there's some pretty big payments out there for these these operations that, that want to go that way. So what I wanted to uh, uh, move toward there was uh, ESG, and, and that stands for Environmental and Social Governance, which is uh, becoming a part of a um, global trend. It's more popular in Europe where European companies want to have a um, uh, certain reporting on their balance sheets, on their impact on the environment and, and social um, issues. And I think that's starting to trickle into, especially in large Fortune 500 companies here in America. And one of the troubles we run into in carbon is right now it's all practice-based, right, Dell? It's like, you do this, it is better. And we hope that corresponds to carbon deposition in the soil. You know, then you get Ray involved or other soil scientists involved and you realize carbon is you know, they're labile and, and soluble and there's all these carbon pools. It's in constant flux at different depths. It is a, it is a bear to quantify that the outcomes are getting what we think the inputs are going to give us. Right. So there's this at this moment in time, I mean, there's been billions of dollars spent on that. There's this disconnect between what we do and what actually happens. It, it there's, there's poor correlation. Now, over time, that'll get better, right? As we better technology, sampling methods, computer modeling, blah, blah, blah. 
But I think there's some low hanging fruit um, that, you know, maybe you and me or a group of us need to put together to provide those KPIs, uh, key performance indicators or, or metrics along uh, ESG that is other than carbon. So I think there's lots of things we can do with uh, bird count diversity that can be easily monitored and censored. Um, you know, your your phone, ha there's apps that can tell you how many birds, male or female, what species, yada, yada, um, at, at any time. Uh, you know, get, get a hold of uh, Dr. Lundgren and the, and the folks at Ecdysis and have them come out and do, you know, bug sampling, diversity, quantity, uh, get a hold of a plant uh, diversity, quantity, quality, all those things and water quality, you know, stream measurements, all those things can be quantified today with the technology that we have and, and, and the carbon will come. Right. But what, what's your thoughts on, on that? Uh, just throwing that out to you there, um, surprising you, giving you a little whiplash, but, you know, using other metrics other than just carbon uh, for companies to meet their and farms to meet their ESG goals or environmental and, and related goals. Because I personally well, think, uh, just sorry to interrupt, but well, I personally think on my farm, one third of the revenue per acre in the future will come from ecosystem services. Oh, I totally agree. So back to carbon is a great start. And, you know, the company we're with has got a very good verification process, as good as it can be now in a, in a moving target type of world. So it's a component to everything you're just talking about. I am 100% in favor of really having that holistic model um, and, and having a lot of different indicators in there. And I know why big companies can't do that, you know, right from the start. I, I think that's, a, you know, another big reason why, you know, Agoro partner with Grace Master knowing that things like this that we were going to be on top of and we were going to be able to help them orchestrate how they move things like that into their program. So yeah, 100% spot on with, with all those things need to be taken into consideration because nature is all those things. So if, if, if all of those things are an indication of soil health, right? So while you totally. can't look, it's hard to get all the bugs that are in the soil, but if you have all the plant life, insect life, bird life, and water quality are correct, then you can back assume that everything soil health is correct. See what I mean? It's um, totally. So uh, we get the soil, you know, my, my big, one of my biggest sayings is we get the soil right, right. We change all society mm -hmm. because touching the soil and, and everything we do with the soil, um, it gives us purpose, but it gives nature's purpose again to everything we've we've stifled everything that was good and and took off to the races on the craziest of things it's like the two cows that thank goodness they're gone you know but we focused on the two cows that we were so in love with build our whole program around it oops that wasn't what we should be doing anything that we can encompass as many different indicators or metrics into making the soil better, making the environment better. You bet all these companies that are looking to invest, they're watching all that. The heavy hitters, 
it, this this whole deal is going to look so much different. And it's happening right now. You know, when you tell farmers about this, it's like, you know, there's a lot of money that's coming into agriculture now that's going to change because they're going to want it to look this way or done this way. And, you know, that it's kind of hard for them to believe. I'm all for it. I, I just, you figure out something, Monty, I'm on board with you. We'll, we'll promote it all over the world because that's the, that's the kind of thought process we need in a very holistic uh, way. I mean, we, our, our phrase balancing nature and profitability at Grace Master, you can do both. You can have nature and you can be profitable. Well said, Dell. I, um, I really appreciate your time today. And I, I do appreciate the term that you are a soil romantic. And if, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to join you there too. I'm, I'm going to be a self-acclaimed soil romantic myself. Um, I'll tell that to my wife. She'll probably get a big laugh out of that at least. Well, so. wait, wait till Valentine's day. Wait till oh, right, week. right, right. I should probably be a, a um, spouse romantic then instead of soil. Right. Romantic. Right. All right. Well, Dale, I, I, uh, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all of the risks that you've taken and uh, the things that you discovered along the way. And uh, I appreciate the impact that you're making, not only on your land, but in helping others on, on their land, too. You too, Monty. We, we appreciate uh, the chance to be on anything like this. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you. You all, uh, you take care now. And, uh, well, I look forward to stopping by and, and visit. I've threatened many times, but, uh, I promise we're going to, we're going to be out there and, and, uh, walk pastures with you. Perfect. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Dell's life experiences and the way he approaches challenges and examines solutions is a real encouragement as we look at ways we can change and improve our farming system. And as he says, he's a soil romantic. So how's your love for the soil today? Well, if you'd like to learn how we show soils we love them and what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.